This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the uh, New Books podcast uh, in East Asia. And uh, my name is Nathan Hobson, and we're going to be talking today with Kate McDonald, who is newly uh, promoted to Associate Professor of Modern Japanese History at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Uh, we're going to be talking with uh, Kate about her book, Placing Empire, Travel and the Social Imagination in Imperial Japan, which is published by the University of California Press uh, in 2017. And it's also available through uh, Cal Press's Open Access Publishing Program. Uh, Placing Empire examines the spatial politics of Japanese imperialism, through a study of Japanese travel and tourism to Korea, Manchuria, and Taiwan between the late 19th century and the early 1950s. In a departure from standard histories of Japan, the book shows how debates over the role of colonized lands reshaped the social and spatial imaginary of the modern Japanese state, and how, in turn, this socio-spatial imaginary affected the ways in which colonial difference was conceptualized and enacted. The book illuminates how ideas of place became central to the production of new forms of colonial hierarchy as empires around the globe transitioned from an era of territorial acquisition to one of territorial maintenance. So I'd like to welcome Kate McDonald to the podcast. Um, and I wonder if you can begin uh, the interview just by saying a few words about yourself, Kate, uh, where you're from, where you went to school, uh, how you became interested in this topic, etc., Yes, thanks, Nathan. Thanks for having me. I'm super happy to be here. I feel like with that question, I should like I like long walks on the beach and you know tacos. Um, <laughs> um, so um, let's see. I um, I think like most people, I ended up in this business just serendipitously. Doors kept opening, and I kept walking through them. And now, and now here I am. But um, I uh, went to Japan just after high school and I was part of an orchestra. We went on tour and we were in the Kansai area and probably most people know that if you're in Kansai, you're eating things like okonomiyaki, you're eating takoyaki and everything has aonori on top of it, powdered seaweed sprinkled on top of it. I couldn't eat it. I was 18 and even though I'm from Seattle, I've got no excuse. Like my palate could just could not. <laughs> so I spent three weeks eating totally amazing ice cream for my little 18 year old brain. I hadn't, you know, I traveled, but this was still something new. Um, and I've used, even the back of my tourist guidebook, I managed to figure out how to say Aonori and like make a big, you know, X sign, make Batsu sign with my <laughs> arms <laughs> and eventually able to have some okonomiyaki. Um, <laughs> but I thought, well, this place is pretty fun. Uh, I'd like to come back here. So I went to college. I went to Georgetown the following fall and I had to take another language. I thought, well, I'll just take Japanese. I learned how to say, please don't put aonori on my food. Right. And, <laughs> and, um, and of course, the intro to Japanese language classes are super fun. It's like lots of singing songs and playing games with pink telephones. And, and I was totally hooked. And I went and so I, I stayed in it. I went back for, for a study abroad, at which point I was happy, surprised to find out that I, my palate had developed. I could totally eat aonori and mm-hmm. 
then I was perfectly comfortable and just launched myself into a happy year there in, in Nagoya, in fact. Um, and that, so that was how I, you know, ended up learning Japanese, speaking Japanese. And then the history component of it is also totally random in the sense that I didn't take any history classes when I was in college. Everybody told me they were too much reading. And so I avoided them. <laughs> and now I'm the one who gets that comment on my student evaluations. Um, and, I feel you. Yeah, right. Um, and, uh, but, so I fin- but I finished school and I really just wanted to stay in higher ed. I wanted to stay geeky and stay with, with ideas. And um, I was really interested in, in, the, in sociolinguistics because I had been in Japan and learning, you know, learning how to speak Japanese properly. And everybody kept saying to me, everybody at home kept saying to me, like, boy, isn't, you know, Japan's so weird, their culture's so this, that, or the other thing, you've got to do this with the language, it's so different. And I kept thinking, you know, it's just not that different. We just tell a lot of stories about how Japanese language is really hierarchical, and you have to pay attention to a lot of things. But honestly, if you're speaking English properly, you have to do that too. And so I really wanted to study these like, kind of like cultural ideas of what language is and what it does and how it separates us. Unfortunately, in addition to not taking any classes in history, I also didn't take any classes, like too many classes in linguistics. So I was not a great candidate for a PhD in sociolinguistics. um, But my advisor, Kevin Doak, who um, is a great and wonderful person, said, you know, we also do discourse analysis in history. You might Mm -hmm. consider it. And I was like, ah, too much reading. But then um, that same summer, I went and I I walked a pilgrimage called the Camino de Santiago. And I promise this is all coming. This is all coming to a particular point. But I walked a, a pilgrimage okay. called the Camino de Santiago in Spain. You walk all the way across Spain. It's been going on for I don't know 800 years. And um, every day you're walking 20, 30 kilometers. It takes in the entire day. One day we were in the outskirts of a big city, and we decided to cheat a little bit. We just didn't want to walk on the side of the highway. It was too scary. And so we took a cab, and in 20 minutes we went as far as it would have taken us eight hours to walk. And because I'd already been walking 20, 30 kilometers a day for 20 days, I really, I really experienced this, this change, this sort of technological change viscerally. It really hit me thinking about, I sat there and I thought, boy, I can really see now why the railroad and the telegraph really blew people's minds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just completely changed how I understand like what is possible in my day, who I might think of as being somehow related to me in a social sense. I mean, it's just everything. And well, okay, the historian in me says it's not everything. There's lots of factors, but, but the, you know, excited person in me says, well, this is really huge. And so I thought, okay, well, maybe there's something to this history thing. Maybe we should be talking about about trains and how they, you know, change your, your social imagination. And I went mm-hmm. back and he gave me, Kevin Doak gave me Stefan Tanaka's book, said, you might find this interesting, his second book. And I did. It's the only book to this day I've ever read cover to cover on an airplane. And <laughs> so that, although not only book, I should say the only academic book I've ever mm-hmm. read on cover to cover on the airplane. And um, then I, and so I, anyway, I decided to, to try graduate school in history and I ended up at San Diego with Stefan and, um, had a wonderful time thinking about time and space and technology and, and how we make sense of it, of experience. You know, what is the kind of historical, the historical specificity of thinking about experiences and thinking about who we are. Um, I learned enough to know that um, talking about how trains have changed people's social imagination is like not a new thing in history. <laughs> a lot right, of people right. have written about that. Um, but still just that, that, that notion of kind of relationship between how we move around 
and how that affects who we think we are stuck with me. Right. And so that's how I ended up um, writing, writing this book about tourism. Okay. Thank you. That was, that was actually fascinating. I, I do have one follow-up question if you don't mind, yeah. which is what instrument? Oh, cello. Cello. Okay. Well, that's fascinating because now we, I, I, uh, I quit cello very early oh. on, but, uh, and of course, as I think, you know, here I am in Nagoya and I'm thinking, wow, we have all these things in common. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. So, so, um, thank you. That was, that was a really uh, great intro to sort of how you got to the book. So now I want to actually like get to talking about the book itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you've talked a little bit about how you, you came to write the book, um, and f- as far as, you know, the, the way I'm reading it, I mean, it's really a book about, um, spatial politics, how that's related to imperialism. Um, you're particularly interested in these questions about, um, uneven structures of rule, colonial difference. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us like, you know, uh, how place and space, uh, work in your book? Like, mm-hmm. what is, what is it that, you know, how is, how is that your, an- like your analytical framework? I guess there's, you know, there's two stories that I can tell about this book. And I suppose this is true for everybody. There's the story of how I actually ended up writing about what I wrote about. And then there's the story that I tell after I wrote about it, about how I came to it and how I had a grand plan the whole way through. But um, so let me, let me start with the, with the, after the fact retelling, we talk a lot in the, in the history of the Japanese empire and the history of modern Japan about, about the role of, um, ethnicity, about race, about all of the policy arguments that went on in terms of trying to differentiate, you know, who's Japanese, Japanese, who's Korean, Japanese, who's kind of different, right? And how that's going to affect not only how different populations are ruled in the Japanese empire, but also how that's going to affect what it means to be Japanese, right? And in in this time period between, you know, the late 19th century and um, the occupation, basically. And what we don't talk about is how people talked about the land that the, that the empire acquired, that the empire took, right? The Taiwan in 1895, Korea in 1910, um, Manchuria in a little bit more ambiguous sense in this entire period from 1906 all the way to 1945. And if we don't talk about those three places and, and, and their land specifically, like how that would affect um, visions and understandings of Japanese-ness, we also definitely don't talk about Hokkaido and Okinawa in that story either, right? So right. Um, we have this 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 huge chunk of the experience of empire, which is this 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 experience of one's nation, which you're just learning about in the late 19th century, right? This is this whole idea of nationalism, and we're all we're all national subjects is new in this moment. You're learning about it, and it's changing, right? So you're kind of learning about how how this Japanese nation state is a primordial entity it's been around you know we've been here forever this is our place um we're all Japanese people together at the same time that this actual form is changing right before people's very eyes and of course you know in 1945 um taiwan korea manchuria ceased or 1952 really with the peace treaty they ceased to be japanese territory um but hokkaido and okinawa stay and this sort of story is is true for all for a lot of these empires, I've probably, you know, most of them, um, 19th to 20th century empires, a lot of that colonial territory um, is, uh, those places become independent, but a lot of them stay part of the empires, right? In the United States, the example would be Hawaii and, and Puerto Rico, which has really been in the news lately for this precise relationship, right? The colonialism that, that never ends. Um, 
And so I thought we really need to be talking about about the relationship between land, between empire, and this process of moving from a world of empires to a world of nation states. How do you deal with this, with this, you know, the, the physical stuff of territory, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's how I ended up. You know, that's that's why I wanted to write this book about about place, um, about spatial politics. The way I actually came to it was, of course, in a totally other route of trying to find a project about trains for a seminar paper in graduate school um, and discovering a vast quantity of Japanese language tourist guidebooks for travel to Korea and Taiwan and Manchuria that nobody had really written about. And I thought, well, there's got to be something interesting to say about this. Um, you know, and I went and I went from that to thinking in a, in a much bigger picture way about the relationship between, between travel and land and empire and nationalism. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so one of the, uh, key, I think, uh, concepts, uh, in the way that the book is laid out is, um, you have the idea of, uh, what you call a geography of civilization, um, mm-hmm. and a geography of pluralism, um, and so part one of the book deals with the geography of civilization and part two with the geography of pluralism. I wonder if you could s- sort of tell us uh, what those two things are, um, how they're related to each other, uh, both conceptually and I guess temporally. Um, mm-hmm. And what what's the sort of change or pivot or turning point between the two of them? Mm-hmm. So... The geography of civilization and the geography of cultural pluralism are two ways of thinking about how Japanese travelers and um, Japanese tourist literature made sense of this territory called the Japanese Empire. Um, one of the one of the things that that I found so interesting and so surprising was that there just wasn't one way of dividing up this, um, either the territory of the Japanese empire or this much more subjective spatial sense of, of the Japanese empire. We talk, you know, in, in, in the field when we're doing the history, we talk about there being inner and outer territories, but this didn't become a formal way of talking about the empire at, at a policy level until 1929. And even with that shift, it, it, the way that people talked about, you know, Korea's relationship to Japan, is it a region of Japan or is it an outer territory or is it just Korea, it's something totally different. Is it a new territory, right? That's constantly changing and different people are doing it in different ways. So I wanted to figure out some way of, of talking about this, what I see as a very big change in terms of how people talked and thought about this, both the territory and the space of the Japanese empire in the late 1910s. And generally speaking, what you see is that in the, in the, first couple decades of empire, so late 19th century to um, about the end of World War I, there is the pervasive sense both in tourist literature, both in, in travel writing and in the what I call prescriptive tourist literature, so the guidebooks and the advertisements um, coming out from the colonial governments and the Japan Tourist Bureau. There's this over, overwhelming sense that what's happening is Japan is, Japan, Japanese culture, Japanese modernity is expanding into Korea and into Taiwan um, and into southern Manchuria to civilize Korea and Taiwan and Manchuria. And they use different words in, in all three places, but this is the general the general vibe, right? It's um, it's your standard civilizing mission type type language. And then something very dramatic happens 
after World War One, you know, slowly at first and then very suddenly, which is which is the tourist guidebooks and eventually travelers themselves start talking about Japan, not as a cultural core that's expanding to change um, change people and places in, in Korea, Taiwan and Manchuria, but as a nation that is composed of diverse cultural regions. So what you end up with is is a very strong sense of Japan as a culturally pluralistic place. And the tourism also changes alongside that. So in the early period, people would travel and the itineraries were, you know, if you're going through Korea and Manchuria, you'd go see a lot of historic sites in Korea, most of which had to do with the Hideyoshi's invasion of invasion of Korea in the late 16th century, the two invasions, um, the Sino-Japanese War in 1894 to 95, or or they had to do with the <clears throat> beginning of formal Japanese colonialism in 1910. And then you'd go to Manchuria and you would see dams and warehouses and soybean oil factories and um, all of these, all of these markers of, um, of the industrial modernity that the South Manchuria Railway Company was, was claiming to bring to Manchuria. And Taiwan, you'd see sugar factories and, and timber factories and all kind of industrialized agriculture. And then suddenly in the 1920s, people are going and the whole point is to see Korean people. And to see Chinese people (laughs) and to see Taiwanese Chinese people and to see indigenous peoples in Taiwan. So ethnic tourism becomes a thing all of a sudden in the late 1920s. And along with ethnic tourism comes this appreciation for the cultural difference, the complementarity that that these places provide to a Japanese cultural core on the on the so-called main islands. So this is this massive shift in in the way that the space of the empire is represented. It's something that people it, um, writing about tourism in the Japanese Empire didn't really talk about because, generally speaking, we've looked at only only one period. So, lots of studies, you know, that look at tourism from say into Manchuria from say 1931 to 1945, but not from 1906 on, right? Um, and if people have you know looked at a longer time span, they've tend, tended to look only in one um, only at one colony, so only at Korea or only at, at Taiwan. And as a result, the explanations for what's happening are about what's happening in that specific colony, right? There's like a Korea-specific explanation for why we we end up with this sort of embrace of Korean cultural difference um, in the in the late 1920s. And those explanations aren't aren't wrong, right? Of course, of course, they're that they're also true. And when I when we look at this bigger picture of this the kind of transcolonial picture of what's happening. Um, what you see is this is this major shift in terms of how people are supposed to um, understand themselves and their own relationship to territory, and how they're supposed to understand the relationship between the so-called metropolitan core of the empire and the colony. And that shift is they're not really supposed to see it as a colony anymore. Not in that same sense of the geography of civilization. Not in the same sense of 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 lack and behindness, but as a kind of cultural complementarity. So in Japan, we're very fast. We're very industrialized. In Korea, Korea is very slow. It's a nice place to relax, right? So starting to make an argument for why, um, how these places could fit together in a much more um, kind of a culturally pluralistic nation state rather than, rather than empire. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Um, 
One of the uh, sort of follow-up questions I had to that is, you know, I think you're um, part of a sort of emerging um, tradition in, in Japanese history that looks at uh, the end of World War One as particularly sort of pivotal in understanding um, modern Japan. Um, and I wonder, and it seemed to me that you're uh, in your book, 1918, you know, the end of World War One really is a pivotal year in this transition from the geography of civilization okay. to a geography of pluralism. I wonder if you could uh, expand on that a little bit, flesh that out. Like, why, what, what is it about the end of World War One that uh, you see as an important uh, transitional sort of pivotal moment? Mm-hmm. So I had to, you know, sort of, just to be very blunt about it, after the end of World War One, you've got to start justifying empire a lot more because there's a lot of colonized people who are out in the streets and they're very sick of it, right? So you've got um, the, the big one in, in the Japanese empire is, of course, of course, the March 1st uprising, March 1st, 1919 uprising in Korea. But there's a number of uprisings in um, Taiwan throughout the 1910s and um, increasing complaints about Japanese colonialism in Manchuria as well, right? So inside the empire, uh, there's increasing public pressure uh, to end imperialism or to change the, the structure of, of colonialism in the, in the case of Taiwan. And then globally speaking, right, you've got all of these empires getting together in the League of Nations and deciding more or less that, that empire is not a good idea anymore, at least not empire in the expanding, taking territory sense, because that, of course, means that these empires are going to continue to bump into each other, particularly in China, and continue to fight these terrible wars with all of their new killing people toys that kill even more people than before, right? So the thing we're going to do to keep that from happening is we're going to not claim any more territory. We're just going to keep things more or less as they are. We're going to promote, you know, national at some level, national self-determination, um, but also just less fighting. And what this means in practice is is not, obviously, as anybody who looks at a world map now knows, it doesn't mean like, oh, we'll just hand back all these territories that we took where people are, are mad at us for, for um, you know, <laughs> rightfully mad at us for colonizing them. What we're going to do is we're just not going to take any more territories. And some of these territories will maybe babysit as a mandated territory, right, until they can um, supposedly govern themselves, which in practice meant never. Um, so there's this massive shift in just the valuation of empire as such, as a political project that happens after World War I. And that means that you've got to now start talking about that territory that you claimed in a much different way. You can't march around talking about how great it is that you're bringing civilization to these people. Of course, that still continues, but it gets toned down a lot. And instead, this rhetoric of protecting um, of, of protecting cultures, right, of allowing different kinds of people to flourish. So this idea that in the case of Japan, that the, the state is a multinational state that is protecting the rights of all of these different ethnic groups equally. Um, this becomes a, the, the more dominant rhetoric of empire at, um, in, in Japan. But also you see it if you look at tourism to say Hawaii in the United States, you see a big shift in the 1920s to, to praising um, and sort of celebrating Hawaiian culture. As a, as a respite from American, American modernity. So to me, it's this really interesting, it's interesting because, you know, in Japanese history, we don't, you know, until recently, we didn't, we didn't think about World War I as being that big of a deal because, of course, Japan wasn't really very involved in the fighting. But, um, you know, the more 
we've looked into it, the more we see that this actually was a tremendous change on on a lot of fronts. So you went, Japan went from being a debtor to a creditor nation because manufacturing took off while the European countries were wrapped up in, in fighting each other. Um, Japan's position and power vis-a-vis China changes changes dramatically. Um, and then, of course, the project of empire itself changes as the as um, the Japanese empire has to has to move to talking about um, has to move to start justifying why they sh- should get to keep all these territories, right? Versus versus the much more triumphant imperialism of the pre World War One era. Okay, thank you. Yeah, um, so you you talk in uh, in the. Uh, early chapters of the book about uh, the idea of the uh, observational travel, Satsuryoko, as this mm-hmm. sort of tr- travel mode um, where, and I wonder if you could tell us sort of what that is, um, how it fits into this, to this narrative, and then, you know, what, what comes after it, right? If that's sort of the travel mode of the geography of civilization, mm-hmm. um, then, then what is it that comes after it? Mm-hmm. So I've, yeah, observational travel. It's really interesting. I, I just spent a lot of, a lot of time trying to figure out what is it about traveling to a place, right, and learning about it that's different from, say, going to a museum and learning about Korea or reading about Korea or Taiwan or Manchuria in your textbook. Because of course, these are all things that that people did in this period. And what everybody insists on when they're writing about these travel experiences is that they are going to observe. And then once they've been there, they finally see, they finally understand what they've been reading about and seeing in museums. All of this is actually true. All of the, the stuff about, um, you know, my Korea is not, not developed enough or Korean people are this way or that way. Um, Taiwan really is a wacky jungle, you know, um, I see it's now really true. And it struck me as so weird because when I travel, this is, you know, how, like the story of how I ended up in this business is I travel and I think, well, this is not at all like what people told me it was going to be, you know? And, and the, the point is not that I'm some kind of, you know, person who sees through it all and everybody else is, is duped, but that, um, but that's something, what, one of the things that's happening in this period is that the way that travel is working is, is encouraging people to observe what they already know rather than to observe something new. Right. Um, so this observational travel I write about, it, it begins with, with student travel groups who are going to Korea and Manchuria just after the, the end of the Russo-Japanese war. They start going right away, 19, 1906, 1907. And they're going, they, um, and they go see sites that are, part of Japanese history in Korea and Manchuria, right? So already the, the itinerary itself sets a frame for that observation. Um, you're going to observe battlefield sites in, in Port Arthur, right? You're going to observe sites of Japanese sacrifice and triumph. You're going to observe these, um, the, the historic sites in Korea, the Hideyoshi's invasions, right? Which they go there and they learn about, wow, Japan has really been trying to protect Korea from China for 
500 years and now we've finally done it, you know? So they, they learn, they, they go and they see the things that confirm that they confirm what the stories they've already read in the textbooks and heard about in the classrooms and in the news. And what seems to make it real is that they're actually on the place itself and they can see that the temple where that negotiation took place, or they can see in the case of 203 meter Hill in Port Arthur, they can see the hill and they can see what a tremendously difficult battle it would have been to climb up that hill and take over the, the Russian, um, um, what's the word, the pillboxes that they had on the top where the machine guns were. Um, and they internalize it, right? So it was really important to think about, about how, observation, how observation itself worked, right? The tour guides, the guidebooks, all of the, the, the constraining of an itinerary, right? All of these things that were designed to produce the effect of a Korea or a Manchuria or a Taiwan that was already familiar, right? That was already part of this narrative of, of places that were legitimately part of Japan and were over time becoming more like Japan, right? This is the, this is the geography of civilization narrative. Um, and, then, and then what happens is in, uh, in the cultural geography of cultural pluralism, you start to observe things in really different ways. And the big change is that the biggest change I saw was the insistence that there was some kind of ethics to observation. And if you were an ethical observer, an ethical traveler, you were going to go and observe how different Korean culture was, how different Koreans were, how different Taiwan was. And you would observe it as, as like a mode of appreciation. Mm-hmm. But you would be appreciating very particular aspects of these cultures. So Korea is, is different in a special and important way because it's different in a way that's complementary to Japan. Right, it's di- Taiwan is different in a way that's complementary to Japan. Um, Manchuria has a lot of resources, and Japan has a lot of manufacturing, and therefore it's just like a really great partnership. These two places put together, um, and that became part of being a good a good citizen. Right, was to go and appreciate these these different cultures, and this was the part of the book that honestly that made me the most uncomfortable. Because it's all, you know, it's really easy to say, like, oh, that geography of civilization stuff, boy, people were just jerks back in the day. You know, these imperialists with their ideas about how much better they were than other people. Right. And now we see that was all humanity, one, one big bad dream for humanity. But actually, this mode of, this cultural pluralistic mode, this, this, um, this kind of meta-ethics of difference, of cultural difference, is still very much with us, right? This is still a very important mode, ethnic tourism, cultural tourism, in, in the present day. And... You know, you go to Taiwan or to Hawaii, right? This is part of what you do. Um, and it made me really think about, well, what is it, you know, what is it that, tour- that tourism is doing in these cases where, where the empire is still hung on to the colonial territory with this, with this meta-ethics of observation? And I think it's, you know, part of it is that is the travelers could continue to, to tell a story about how this kind of colonialism was legitimate and it was just because it was protecting these cultures. And they were also good people because they were observing and recognizing the value of these cultures. And they would actually say, you know, oh, in the past we used to, we used to say so many bad things about Koreans, but that's not true. They're actually really valuable. They work really hard, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they work really hard. Um, they might be forced labor, but they work really hard. So this, you know, this, this was a big change I, I saw in observation. Yeah, and I think this takes us um, in a really interesting way back to um, the, the sort of main theme uh, as I'm reading it, which, uh, you know, you say that, quote, um, place is an articulation of social relations. 
Um, and you're, you're talking about um, the sort of worldviews that are created that sustain um, unequal coloner, colonizer colonized relations um, as a big part of sort of what space does. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I was really interested in the fact that, you know, you, you, you primarily uh, uh, focus on the tourism side of this um, mm-hmm. rather than the, the policy side. But I wonder if you could um, mm-hmm. talk about how the, the, the idea of place as an articulation of social relations, which I think you've, you've started to, uh, to really delve into now. I wonder if you could expand on that just a little bit for us um, and how that works within mm-hmm. a structure of empire. Sure. The interesting thing about place is it can be whatever you want it to be, right? It's, um, it's not, or I should say one, one version of place is drawing outlines on a map and saying, okay, there, that is Taiwan, right? But, but of course we all encounter place in a much more subjective way. We think about places as having essences. We think about, you know, particular atmospherics, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I always feel like I get off the airplane in Japan and it somehow smells like Japan in a way that no other place does. I don't know if that's actually true, but that's what my brain tells me. Um, and then we also think about place in terms of status, so kind of relative location, and that can be that can be like a like a, a temporal measurement. This place is is advanced, and this place is not advanced, developed, not developed, and you know, in that old kind of older terminology. Um, it could be you know, relative to say a transportation geography, this place is five hours away from that place. If you go by airplane, right? So there's lots of different ways that we make sense of, of the world around us, you know, not to mention how we think about things in relationship to our own body um, in front of me, behind me, Northeast, Southwest, lots of different ways to orient yourself in the world. So to me, what's really interesting is how people choose to make sense of place in particular time periods, right? If we remove the idea that, that place is that there is like an absolute, an absolute space and an absolute geography out there that, that can be discovered or apprehended. Then um, you end up in this world of really interesting choices, you know, the messy world of, of humans, ah, the humanities. Why, why, why this way of thinking about them, thinking about places. Um, So when I said that places and articulation of, of social relations, um, which I actually think is during Massey's phrase, um, what I'm, what I was signaling there is, is this idea that people are, are using space as a way of talking about people, right? Um, in, in, if you, if you're reading materials from this time period in Japanese, you're going to run across the, the Korea language about the Korea problem and the Taiwan problem, Chosen Mondai, Taiwan Mondai. And of course the place itself is not a problem, right? They're talking about, they're having difficulty um, with people who do not want to be colonized anymore, right? That's the Korea problem. That's one of the Korea problems that comes up. Um, so why are we talking about this in the language of place and not, you know, and not in terms and not in terms of people? So that, you know, so that idea of, of, of places as an articulation of social relations was one of the places that I started to then ask questions. Well, why, why are we talking about place in this way? Why are we talking about place in that way? And one of the things that that was really interesting to me was was if you go back to the beginning of the formal Japanese imperial project with with 1895 and and the acquisition of Taiwan and all the debates about what kind of government are we going to set up for Taiwan, of course this whole project starts with a lot of ambivalence. Is Taiwan going to be part 
of Japan and under the jurisdiction of the Meiji Constitution, or is it going to be something totally separate? Um, and there are people arguing passionately on both sides, arguing that you know we don't want to be like the Western empires. What we should do is not recreate Western imperialism, but we should just bring Taiwan on board, make it part of Japan. Of course, it's a little different than how we have things here, but we'll work that out. Um, but instead, the argument that that prevailed was the argument that Taiwan needed to be under a special kind of government because it um, it was a place that was going to require uh, things that you couldn't do in Japan if you were under the Meiji Constitution, right? So the governor general was going to need a much freer hand um, to to bring that to bring Taiwan really fully into into Japan. So there was never like like the place of these colonies was always from the very beginning of Japanese of Japanese imperialism was always in question. And I think and the thing that that I wanted to emphasize throughout the book was that of course that never resolved. People would say it had resolved, but it, but it kept it kept coming up. It kept changing. People kept asking is Korea is it is this is this Japan? Is this not Japan? Um Textbooks from the from the 1910s would write about would write about Korea and Taiwan and Manchuria as the new national land, Shinkokudo. And of course, Manchuria is not formally Japanese territory in this period, but but it's talked about sometimes as as national territory anyway, right? Um, so this all remains a question. And then when you get to the 1930s, the same idea that Taiwan is a little bit different, that Korea is a little bit different, and that's why it required a government general system, a colonial government instead of, instead of being part of Japan, the same idea comes back and becomes the argument for self-determination in Korea and becomes the argument for self-rule in Taiwan. We're a little bit different. We need our own way of governing ourselves. We can't be governed by this empire, you know, this empire that's, that's seated in Japan. So these ideas, these ideas of place, they keep they keep churning, they keep coming back as arguments for um, for political change and, and arguments for seeing the world a little bit a little bit differently. Yeah, thank you. Um, and this this may be sort of a, a strange transition, I guess, since we've been talking about place so much. One <laughs> of the things that actually um, I found uh, additionally fascinating about the way that you've uh, done the book is actually the periodization, right? Um, that mm. you know most. Uh, historians of Japan, and I think sort of more, more broadly, we sort of reflexively um, pick 1945 as a, you know, a, a zero year, right, as a sort of reset point. Right. Um, and you haven't done that. And I wonder if you could talk uh, about that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Right, we have the traditional, the traditional periodization, you know, 1868 to 1945, or 1931 to 1945. And then, and then, we're still sort of arguing about what the periodization right. post war is going to be. Um, but it seemed to me that a really, 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 if I was going to write a book about how, um, about how empire, the, you know, the project of empire as such went through this massive transition of going, you know, project of territorial acquisition to one of territorial maintenance. And we know that it went through this because we know that people, that empires didn't give their territory back. I was going to have to talk about the post-war and how not all, you know, the Japanese Empire didn't give all of that territory mm-hmm. back. Um, and also how, you know, how people who had had spent all of this time, you know, going to Korea and going to Manchuria and going to Taiwan to, to learn about these places firsthand, suddenly had to learn again, you know, in kind of the, the photographic negative version of the project of the, of the late 19th century, learn again about how these places are actually not part of Japan, after all, JK on that 
whole front, right? So, so I kept the story going a little bit. I bypass I bypassed the war almost entirely, and and jumped to the to the post war, where I found these really interesting textbooks, geography textbooks, or sort of shakaika um, social studies textbooks. Where, there's, where the, the textbook is talking about how uh, the geography of East Asia. And they're having to explain to people who are reading it that this is, this is the place that we used to call Taihoku. Like, this is Taipei. We used to call it Taihoku. This is, uh, this is northeastern China. We used to call it Manchu, right? And so sometimes they would have the, they would have the, the furigana, the guide to, to reading the characters, um, next to the characters and one of them would, would have the way you read the characters in the the current language of that place so korean or chinese and the other one would be how you would have read it in japanese 10 years ago um and again walking people through the process of of understanding again um what is japan right and what are the boundaries and the kind of the borders of of Japanese nationness and the, and the Japanese nation. Um, they're not doing it so much in the form of actual tourism in this moment, because of course you're not allowed to leave under the occupation without special permission. And most people didn't have the, the time or money to do that anyway, even if they would have been allowed. Um, people are, are spending all of their effort to get back to Japan being repatriated. And then, and then most of, um, you know, Korea breaks out, into war. Um, China's in the civil war. So these places aren't really tourable in this moment either. What they do instead is write, um, write about their memories of traveling and how weird it is that now Taiwan's not part of Japan anymore and how weird it is that Korea is not part of Japan anymore. What am I going to do with those memories? How do I even remember where I went when now it's not Keijo anymore, it's Seoul? Did I go to Seoul? Did I go to Keijo? And it's just this really interesting process of of creating, it's not decolonizing memory, it's not that, but it's kind of like a a post-colonial spatial identity that incorporates that colonial experience, but now with this layer, now now it's kind of refracted through this this experience of, um, of, of separation. And so I wish, I mean, I wish I could have, I wish I could have kept going and kept telling that story through the seventies and through the eighties when tourism does start up again to all of these places. Um, but un- unfortunately, um, there's only so many pages one can put into a single book. So I hope somebody else will tell that story. Yeah, I, I actually wonder if you wouldn't mind, um, you know, it, it, it gets a little bit out, out of the, the, the realm of your book, but since you brought it up, I mean, speculating a little bit about mm-hmm. the, you know, we've just been talking about the sort of afterlife of, of empire, right? From 45 to 52. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems to me that there's also a sort of afterlife to that afterlife. And I know, and it sounds like that's something you're mm-hmm. interested in. I wonder if you wouldn't mind saying a word or two about that, sort of what you see um, in Japan now and how that relates to um, the, the, the subject, the topic of your book. Mm-hmm. The afterlife of the afterlife of empire. Yeah. Sorry to throw that at you. But... Um, no, it's it. <laughs> it never dies. Um, it's, it's interesting. Um, I mean, I'm writing now about about specifically about tourism to two or three meter mm-hmm. hill in Port Arthur. You know, which I write about in the first chapter of the book. And um, as part of the the research for this other article I'm doing, which also deals with 
the experiences of some Korean travelers to this place, um, I came across the fact that the NHK did a, um, did, did a, what's the word, like a dramatization of, of the book Sakanoe no Kumo, the, the Clouds Above the Hills, um, Shibari Otaro's book, which is this historical novel of um, the Russo-Japanese War. And in the, the book itself was written in the 60s or, or 70s. And what was so funny to me was I, I looked at the book and I, the, way that, the way that he's telling the story of Two or Three Meter Hill is, of course, exactly how these Japanese tour, tour guides told the story of Two or Three Meter Hill in the 1910s. So um, skipping the part where they, they, there was a, a push to create a, much, uh, a memory that was much more capacious that could really in, incorporate Korean travelers going to this site and, and trying to get them to feel some kind of affective response as a Japanese subject. So skipping over that that period of, of remembering this battle um, and going right back to the version, the, the first version in the early 1910s. And then this is the version that the NHK also recreates in its in its version of two, the battle at two or three meter hill. So if you watch um, the scenes from, from that show, I recognized all the different components of that from reading about the tour guides version of that battle in, you know, 1907. Um, and then it also turns out that, that of course there's lots of, of Japanese tourists who are now, who are going to two or three meter Hill again and learning that story. Right. So this, so it's interesting to me because this is of course a completely different territorial context, right? Um, trying to figure out what this same story means in a moment when Manchuria is not part of Japan and is not going to be part of Japan, right? But there's all of this history of empire and warfare um, with China behind it. So what work is this story doing now? And it's also interesting to think about how, um, you know, Chinese tourists go to this, this same area and learn about a lot of this stuff in the context of national humiliation. And I understand that Korean travelers also go to Port Arthur and um, and the area, and they look at at prisons where Koreans were held. So all these, so we're, so all of these people are doing sort of post-colonial national tourism in these sites that were that were spots for Japanese imperial tour, tourists in the in the period of Japanese empire. So that to me is one is one really interesting story. Um, and then and then you know I think there's a lot more that that we could say and think about in terms of in terms of of this issue of historical memory and, and coming to terms with with empire and its consequences mm-hmm. and the role that tourism plays in keeping that from happening right so the more the more time I spend as a, as a human in this world, and certainly the more time I spend thinking about tourism, the more I think that, that it's, it's not a good idea to send people to another place and have a canned tour where you see a bunch of historical sites and you studiously avoid talking to any people who live there. But that's not, that, actually, that actually recreates this idea that the world is divided up into places that have that that are like their own little containers with their own little histories, their own little cultures, and those places are, are very separate, right? Versus a vision of the world that's about people, right? People having different experiences, and and um, there are lots of different kinds of people with lots of different kinds of experience in a particular place. Um, that to me would be a much more interesting interesting mode of travel. Um, if we didn't talk about, I'm going to go see Korea, but if we talked about, I'm going to go 
see these 20 people who I haven't met before, but we're going to tell some stories and find out about each other and then go home, right? That, that um, we, might, we might actually accomplish something. So that's like a little public service announcement that I don't <laughs> think anybody's going to write a paper about. But there is, you know, <laughs> but we are, but, but the, the point is that the Japanese travelers and, and all of us travelers in the United States and in Europe, we continue to learn about, to learn and internalize the world that empire built when we're traveling without realizing that, that, that that's what we're doing, right? We, we do think about ourselves as being pretty good people for going and appreciating other cultures and, and learning about other places, you know, being interested in the world. This is very good. And we have to continue to be very critical about what it is we're learning and what's the story that, that this knowledge is, is building for us, right? Great. And thank, thank you for uh, not only uh, the answering my question, but also adding a little PSA in there. I really do appreciate that. Um, so I, I know you're, you said you're working on this article on uh, 203 Meter Hill. Um, is there anything else that you're working on and when can we expect that to come out? Do you have any, uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you're, what you're up to these days? Especially, well, I mean, are you, I don't oh, know, yeah. are you resting so on your laurels now yeah. that you've been promoted or, you know, what's going on? <laughs> No, no, this is so exciting. I mean, um, I loved writing this book. I loved finally getting to say the thing that I had been trying to say and and wanted to say for the 10 years that I was working on the project. And now I'm equally excited to be working on other things. Um, um, I just feel like I've got the best job in the whole world. Um, so, so my sandbox now, my happy little sandbox is, I've got this article on two or three meter hill that's going to come out at the end of the year in a special issue of Japan Review on War and Tourism that uh, Daniel Milne and Andrew Elliott are editing at uh, there in Kyoto. They're fabulous. And I'm also working with um, David Ambaris at North Carolina State. We've got this great digital spatial history project. It's called Bodies and Structures, Deep Mapping the Spaces of Japanese History. And there we've got um, contributors, each of whom has has built a a module, basically a, their own tiny digital book around a particular primary source that has really interesting spatial historical content. And so they have this whole module examining these primary sources. They've translated portions of them, um, and the modules are, are are telling us as researchers and as students. Um, what's interesting about this source, like what's going on here spatially that we should be thinking about. And how does this spatial story affect how we talk about modern Japanese history and the history of the Japanese empire? So this digital project is coming together and that's going to be, um, we're going to publish the very first version of it um, at, by the end of the summer. That's, that's the goal. And then hopefully we're going to get to do another much bigger expanded version, a kind of 2.0 that includes Southeast Asia and China um, or more of China and then Southeast Asia as a totally new area um, next year and the year after. So that's that's another project that I'm working on. I want to, as I talk about that, I want to make a plug for collaborative work mm-hmm. as such. Um, I It was really important to me with this Placing Empire book to do more than one, to talk about more than one colonized territory. So not just Korea, but Korea and Taiwan and Manchuria. And I sort of talked earlier about, about why that was important. Um, but it was also really hard. I don't I don't uh, read Korean or Chinese, and I and I worked with some very talented and dedicated and brilliant graduate students who helped me with that material. But these are the kinds of stories that need to be told, and if we expect every single scholar to have three languages under their belt and not and have mastery of all of these other you know historical literatures, we're not. It, it's it's a really high bar, right? But instead, 
we have a lot of knowledge and expertise in the room, in the field, and we could be doing a better job of teaming up, right, to, to work dialogically, to build these stories that, that from the get-go have two or three different viewpoints because they're written by two or three different scholars, right, each of whom brings a different set of skills to the project. I am um, very excited about the potential of collaborative work to to really take um, Japanese history, modern Japanese history, in a in a new direction. Then the third project that I'm working on is is my second mm-hmm. monograph, and that one is called "The Rickshaw and the Railroad: Human Powered Transport mm-hmm. in the Age of the Machine," and that is a study of of what I'm calling human-powered modes of transport. So the rickshaw, which we know about, the human-powered railway, which we don't all know about, and things like carts, all of the all of the devices that were not railroads but were absolutely essential to moving people and moving stuff around um, in the late 19th century and all the way through to the present day. So hopefully if I get to do this the way I want to do it, the story is going to go all the way through to um, parcel delivery people, Takuhai, mm-hmm. Takuhai delivery people in um, the late 20th century. And the point there is to really think about, about technological change as being something lumpy and complex and oftentimes involving things that don't really change that much. So we have a story about modernization being a move from, from a human-powered universe to a mechanized universe. And the more you look at the iconic technologies of the modern era, the railroad, for example, particularly in Japan, you find that it doesn't actually work without people moving things around still. And if you push that a little bit further and you get a little metaphorical about it, there's not, there are not self-driving trains, right? The trains need maintenance. The horses need, the horses need care and feeding, right? All of these systems are powered and operated by humans. But what you find is particularly after the late 19th century, a lot of talk about how human, if you've got humans powering your transport system, then you're not developed. Then you're wasting latent capital. If you could just mechanize all your transport, you would unlock all of, you know, this, unlock all of these resources that you would then use to make your country even, even wealthy and more powerful. So you start to see this, this real denigration of human powered transport labor um, in Japan and, and elsewhere. And so what I want to do is go back to that story and, and talk about why it is we started talking about human-powered transport in this particular way, and then retell the history of human-powered transport, not as, not as one of, of decline to eventual obsolescence, but as something that is, that is a constant presence in the modern world, and for that reason should be respected and valued. All right. Well, thank you very much, Kate. Uh, I loved your book. I'm looking forward to those projects coming out. And I also want to thank you for uh, your generosity with your time today for uh, talking with us. Um, Kate McDonald is a newly minted uh, associate professor of modern Japanese history at uh, the University of California, Santa Barbara, UCSB. And her book is Placing Empire, Travel and the Social Imagination in Imperial Japan, out from uh, University of California Press last year. And already she's hard at work on a whole bunch of other projects. Uh, So Kate, we're looking forward (laughs) to hearing more from you in the future. And again, thank you so much. Thanks for having me.